Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen, and every other Friday we together navigate the high seas of global politics. And I'm Peter Schechter. Muni, this is such a hard episode for us. We're discussing what is really a once-in-a-lifetime crisis in Latin America, a region that you know is so close to our heart. It is our heart. You know, it's where you were born. It's where I grew up. It's where we both have worked and played and where we have family, where we have some of our dearest friends. And I, I got to tell you, I have never been more pessimistic about a region that I love. For 10 years, for the last decade, we've seen economic growth, encouraging strides towards equality, strides towards better freedoms in most of Latin America. But now, fueled with this pandemic, even the most stable countries are just breaking apart, revealing such scars and opening these new ones. You know, most concerning of all, Muniak, is the erosion of democracy that we're seeing everywhere from the Rio Grande all the way to Patagonia. And we're going to be joined by a good friend of Muni's and mine, who is Ricardo Avila. He's a Colombian journalist, the former editor-in-chief of Portafolio, the most important business newspaper in Colombia, and one of the most balanced voices in Latin American today. Peter, sad and concerning is really an understatement. It's really hard to write this episode, to, you know, to do it. We've tried in our conversations to look for some silver linings. It's really not that easy. What really happened is COVID put the brakes on all the good numbers and even more so than the rest of the world. So the news is dire on the economic front and expected GDPs everywhere are double digit negative numbers. And of course, not surprisingly, in a historically violent region, homicide rates are exploding much as a result of organized criminals taking advantage of widespread discontent and lawlessness. But now there's an explosion of unrest also by organized institutions, by unions, by students, women, frustrated, unemployed, sick and tired and beaten down by poverty and also angry at corruption and poor government, failing institutions. Unfortunately, the formula is very similar everywhere. Extreme responses from the security units, arbitrary detentions and paramilitary activity, which only make things worse. And no government in the region seems up to the challenge. Neither the corrupt strongmen on one side, the populists from left and right, nor the very well-intentioned but very weak and feeble technocrats are succeeding. And so the result is the Americas are now the most violent region in the world, one of the hardest hit by COVID, and the region most likely to sink into economic and political chaos. You know, and what's so sad about all of this is that it's not only about the countries that have historically not worked or, or haven't worked, like Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba, these countries that have been such problems for the last 20, 40 years, because... What we're seeing now is in the last year, we're witnessing like Chile, who that had a remarkable success with vaccination. It sort of elected to do a constitutional reform. It's totally succumbing to disease and hunger, protests and, you know, political fractures. Peru, which is has been the darling of investors over the last 20 years, is now looking at presidential elections between one of the most corrupt politicians in Peruvian politics and a radical Marxist who quotes 
Marx and Castro all the time. Mexico is on fire with AMLO, who is clashing with business leaders and opposition groups. Brazil, totally isolated in the world, which is caring all about India, but just the world is ignoring Brazil because Jair Bolsonaro is just this scary autocrat. And we're looking at an election next year in Brazil between Bolsonaro and the former president who was jailed for corruption, uh, Lula da Silva. So the problem isn't only what's happening, but there just seems to be sinking and no hope. And the headlines these days are about my own country, Colombia, my own hometown of Cali, what to say, all the protest and the uh, mayhem and the paralysis the country's in. And it's a country that has long suffered profound inequality, but it's also been kind of the poster child for a stable democracy in the region. A true success story was a failed state, what recovered and is now at risk of slipping back into failed state status. It all kind of came at the same time, a flawed vaccination process, a weak government, an organized and infiltrated leftist opposition and the violent leftovers of an incomplete peace process have caused the largest, bloodiest street uprisings in recent history. And they continue as we record The electoral cycle is happening at the most fragile time possible. There's frustrated, angry voters on all sides that were vulnerable to populist charlatans from left and right. The bill for COVID can't be paid with economies underwater. People don't want reform. The virus is raging. Something's got to give. And I don't know what gives because the region just seems out of ideas. Well, that's actually not true. It's espousing dead ideas. So you have candidates espousing you know, radical Marxism or radical freedman-like full blazing capitalism. And, you know, you look at AMLO or Bolsonaro, the candidates in Peru's election, they're all, you know, spouting these ineffective and workable ideas that have been discarded for decades. And so the region is in flames and it's hitting youth the hardest. And that's where we're going to take some time for Teas Take. For Altamar, this is Taya Steak, and I'm Taya Ivanovich. So here's another really depressing fact, guys. The pandemic led to the worst economic decline in Latin America in 200 years. So Peter and Mooney, you guys talked about inequality. And the dire economic situation is worse for young people. So currently, there is 106 million young people between 15 and 24 living in Latin America and the Caribbean, which is 20% of the total population. And that's the largest proportion of young people ever in the region's history. So since COVID began, one in six young adults in Latin America lost their jobs, and university enrollment is expected to drop by as much as 25% in several countries. It's all just really, really sad. And what's really depressing is that only a few years ago, Latin America was bubbling with innovation and social impact, with breakthrough apps such as Rapi, which is a delivery app, or Mercado, a fintech app, that were started by young Latin American entrepreneurs. The region seemed ready for a transition to a new age of entrepreneurship and innovation. But the pandemic laid bare a lot of structural problems. And as is usually the case with economic downturns, the youth, those with limited education or experience in the workforce, are left without a safety net. So already Latin America, including the Latin American countries that are part of the OCD, you guys mentioned Colombia and Chile, for example, have some of the lowest PISA education scores in the world. So how will Latin Americans' youth compete if they're already starting from so far behind? So how do you think this economic downturn will impact tomorrow's youth? 
tweet at Altamore Podcast and let us know. Yeah, it's sad that even the younger generations are not presenting some good news to us. So this is a really good time to welcome Ricardo Avila to Altamar. He's a longtime friend of both Peter and I. He's an economist, an inspirational speaker, and a respected journalist. He's advised governments, multilateral institutions, and news organizations, and has held positions as editor-in-chief, foreign correspondent, columnist, op-ed editor, among others. He's done really the rounds in the news business. Until recently, he was editor-in-chief of Portafolio, Colombia's respected business publication. He's won multiple journalism awards, authored several books, one of which is called, and this is a telling title for now, Latin America and the Domino Effect, which is relevant for today's conversation. Ricardo, thank you so much for joining us in Altamar. Thank you. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. And, and yes, uh, these are troubling times for this region of 650 million people. We just finished a very depressing discussion about this region. We talked about COVID, economic collapse, political upheaval. Peter has also said that he's never been so pessimistic and he's a pretty optimistic guy. What is your assessment of the region as a whole at this time? Well, I'd say that uh, you have to be careful regarding uh, general generalizing about uh, Latin America because it is a very heterogeneous region. Uh, and we find uh, both the extremes and all all the shades in between. So in that sense, it is difficult some, sometimes to speak out one Latin America, although it is true that the recent trends don't uh, look uh, encouraging. How do you see the future here? How does one get out of this problem? Well, I would say we will get out of this problem the Latin way, in the sense that this is not a straight line. And uh, yes, we are in the middle of a cycle a very complex cycle because of the pandemic, as well as, as because of the political situation, uh, uh, as well as people feeling the pressure of both an economic, uh, a health and a social crisis. But at the same time, I mean, this is a region that has proven uh, many times in the past that it, it can go forward. Probably it will do it as it has been the tradition, uh, taking two steps forward and one step backward, but uh, uh, the net result at the end of this decade, I, ho I hope it will be positive. Ricardo, even though it's impossible and also irresponsible to talk to the, about the region in, in, in generalizations, there are some issues that are affecting everyone. The COVID, obviously the COVID-related crisis, what is brewing underneath, which is corruption, inequality. Many countries are living through a third or fourth wave of the virus and also a significant downturn in their economies. And big countries like Brazil are suffering greatly. How can countries like Brazil, for example, rebound from blow after blow? No, I believe that uh, my, my forecast for Brazil is that we will see a political renewal in 2022. I believe that uh, people are getting tired of the Bolsonaro versus Lula confrontation and And, uh, and in that sense, there is a high probability of uh, choosing someone that looks uh, towards the future, uh, that is not entangled in the past. And in that sense, I believe that Brazil has the chance of surprising us again, uh, in the sense that it is, uh, it is a country of, of ups and downs. And uh, yes, the situation is complex at the, at the moment, but I wouldn't discount Brazil as a lost case. I, I never do, actually. Ricardo, let's talk a little bit about what's happening 
outside your window in Bogota and in Cali and in Medellin. You know, it's a, Colombia is a country I've been to probably over a hundred times and a country I've come to love. And it's so depressing to see what's happening there on the streets and the anger that people feel. Give us a sense for what you're seeing when you go out and also give us a sense of how Colombia comes out of this. Well, first, this was a, a surprise for many Colombians. Uh, it is absolutely clear that when you look in retrospective, you have to take into account uh, what happened during the national strike of uh, November uh, of 2019. And in that sense, sort of the basis for, for this uh, situation was there already. And when you add to that uh, sort of the effects of the pandemic, both in, in terms of uh, the social situation and in terms of the, the economics, as well as a political reality in which the government is very ineffective in dealing with uh, the concerns of the people. And you have sort of the, the beginning of the electoral campaign aimed towards the elections of 2022. You have the ingredients of a, of a cocktail that has many sides. First, it is absolutely true that there is a rejection from the part of the people to tower some of the government of these government's policies. The government presented a tax reform that actually was positive in the sense that uh, it was going to address issues of poverty and inequality, but it was absolutely disastrously sold to the public, basically because it was never explained. It was a very ambitious and complex uh, proposal, and we saw that, for example, the Minister of Finance never went before the public before, besides the, the first introduction of the proposal, and then explain sort of the basics of his project. So in that sense, sort of uh, a narrative became common in the streets with, of course, most people hadn't read the proposal. And when the water began to rise, to use the expression, the government reacted in a very, very slow motion. So when it finally withdrew uh, its proposal, sort of things had taken, uh, were in movement already, and it became basically a protest uh, against uh, everything the government represents. How does it end? How does Colombia go forward? Well, I have two scenarios. First, uh, we, we go uh, towards a situation similar to what Chile experienced uh, at the end of 2019, that process took 150 days of continuous protest in the streets, sometimes more intense, sometimes less intense, but again, it took five months. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the government really engages in a dialogue process, and in that sense, it will be able to sort of diffuse some of the tensions, but I believe, sadly, that I give this uh, other scenario uh, less probability as things stand now. I, I believe that uh, part of the problem of the government is not being able to understand that this is a multifaceted uh, problem and that it has many sources. And uh, as Chimamanda Ngozi uh, would say, this is the danger of a single story. The government believes that this is basically a conspiracy in which we have violent elements, which is true, 
but it's not by far the only explanation. You and I know each other for a long time. You know I can talk about Colombian politics for hours, but you mentioned Chile, and the similarities are incredible because Chileans also went to the streets supposedly because of a transportation hike in price, but the reason they went to the street is actually so many other things. So let's talk a little bit about Chile. It's the darling of Latin America. You know, everybody's so impressed with Chile. They had a great vaccine response, and they've had a sort of interesting constitutional reform response. But something happened, and Chile is now in as bad a situation as many countries in Latin America. Why do you think that is? Well, I believe that the issue of inequality is something that we have taken lightly in this region. This is the most unequal region in the world. And in that sense, yes, we saw poverty going down. But at the same time, when you begin to leave uh, poverty behind, is you see the differences. And for many millions of, uh, of Latin Americans, sort of the perspective has to be in a vicious circle of basically not being able to advance, while at the same time, you see these excesses from the top 1% of the population. And I believe that in this case, social networks have played a role in basically showing people how difficult their, their lives are, while at the same time, there are these privileged uh, people who are enjoying all, all the benefits of the system. And I believe that creating resentment and anger, and, and in that sense, if our society doesn't address these concerns, we will be in the middle of situations of explosions of rage like this during the future. It's a perfect segue for my next question, because all of this inequality and economic downturn is now also affecting politics, which is growing to the extremes. If you look at Bukele or Bolsonaro on the right and Petro in Colombia and Castillo, one of the presidential candidates in Peru on, on the left, I mean, there is no middle ground or can there can a middle ground return in Latin America? No, I believe that actually, actually in the case of Chile, we are going to see that the center holds. Uh, we don't know uh, if it's going to be the center uh, right or the center left. I believe that it's going to be the center left, but it's going to be the center. And that Chile will be an example on how to deal with these pressures. After, of course, a very complex situation, uh, I believe that, that Chile will show the way for the rest uh, of Latin America. I'm, of course, very concerned about the, the case of Peru. Uh, I, I I believe this is the most unfortunate situation in which basically neither a candidate is the right candidate uh, or is the right president for, for that country. But at the same time, we have seen that in, in Peru, things operate in a particular way in which if the new president clashes with some of the powers that, that exist, we will see political instability and change of, of names uh, on who is who is in the presidency, but again, this is part of the of this confusion that is associated with with these times. I believe that eventually we will find a way, uh, and that Chile will, will show us how. And I believe that actually that Colombia will also find a way, despite the fact that we are in the middle of a of a very complicated uh, 
situation. Well, that sounds very good, and I hope you're right. Me too. We've seen a, the the kind of the resurgence of the of a, at least in public discourse of the military in Latin America. We've seen it in in Brazil, in Salvador, in Colombia, etc. And it's a, been a continent of military juntas, generals, dictators as kind of protagonists of the political world. But it appeared to disappear some from the public conversation. Do you envision a comeback of the military strength? I, I don't I don't see that. What I see is is basically sort of the temptation of following what uh, Maduro has done in Venezuela, what Ortega has done in Nicaragua, or what Bukele is doing in El Salvador, which is theoretically democratic regimes that actually, in the practical sense, are dictatorships or, or autocratic regimes in which basically the president tries to control. Uh, the, the three branches of power. And I believe this is a concern. And I believe in that sense, sort of international action is needed. One of the things that I'm sorry for during these times is basically a lack of leadership that the new is U.S. administration has shown, basically in the sense that there's a vacuum, despite the fact that Joe Biden sent, uh, sent uh, a couple of envoys to the region. And and uh, I believe that uh, you need to put international pressure in order to sanction these attitudes because, of course, the bad, uh, bad examples uh, tend to be followed everywhere. And there are some very bad examples in the region at this time. Ricardo, you're an economist. You've written extensively about kind of the, the good decade that the Americas had in the past decade and how economic growth uh, was very much tied to the rising commodity prices. All this has changed and Colombia is now a sad economic story. What measures can be taken to make these countries more viable, less vulnerable, and, and particularly what, what role does the private sector play there? Well, first, it is absolutely true that uh, Latin America in general is a, con is, a, is a region that is very rich in natural resources. When we talk, for example, about transition energy and how the role of the of the new sources of energy is going to take hold over the next 10 to 20 years. And where are these uh, raw materials coming from? They are going to come from Latin America and particularly from South America. Uh, when we talk about where is the food for uh, an additional 2 billion people in the world is going to come from, we have to think about Latin America. So in that sense, Latin America is too important for the world to become a failure because the the world, the rest of the world needs both the, the raw materials, particularly in mining, as well as the food that the, this region is, is able to, to produce. And in that sense, if the governments of this region are able to diversify the productive base, base of, of the different countries, we're going to see that investments are going to continue coming into the region and that hopefully economic growth will resume. One country that has understand well how relevant Latin America is, is China, and it's been increasing its footprint in the region kind of slowly and quietly and now has a, a very large footprint. Do you see this as a reason for optimism or concern or both? No, I believe it is positive in general terms, but we have to understand sort of the geopolitical realities of the region. I, uh, it is clear that, uh, for example, Russia playing games with, with the Maduro government and, and, uh, and of course, uh, 
uh, exerting um, its influence in the region is not necessarily a positive factor, but hopefully the presence of, of China uh, in Latin America will sort of be a wake-up call to the U.S. Uh, in the sense that it has to pay much more attention to this part of the world. I know that the plate of the Biden administration is full after so many years of neglect, but again, this is the U.S.'s backyard and many things are happening here. And if there's not a proactive policy, well, basically the, the consequences of, of that uh, are going to be seen in, in migration patterns or in terms of economic crisis. Uh, and I believe it, it's a major, a huge mistake not, not to uh, look south. So what would be the proactive policy you'd advise Biden to take? No, I believe that he has to start well, first, regarding the pandemic, I believe that the U.S. should be more proactive in terms in terms of helping with the vaccines. The, the difference be, the, the, between the attitudes of China regarding the vaccines and the U.S. is dramatic. And now that the U.S. is getting close to a landmark of 200 million people vaccinated, I mean, the vaccine diplomacy in this region has to start in a very aggressive way. I know what the, the, all the discussions about potential liabilities, but that would be a start. And second, it's money. And the U.S. has to invest more in the region and, and has to build bridges. But we haven't seen that so far. I know that the situation and the money is always tight, but investments uh, and, and a proactive policy on the part of the U.S. government is badly needed because China is doing its job. But the US, the US is not. Let me just end with a quick question. Is there anything that you would point to as a positive thing to look at in Latin America today? Is there a bright spot? The question of the young, is there a country that's performing better? What <laughs> is there anything you'd point to that would make you smile? No, I see, for example, countries that are are doing things uh, better than others, and Euro, uh, the, the, uh, some of the small uh, of the smaller countries are, are doing things uh, the right way. Uh, Uruguay, I believe, is doing things the right way, despite the fact that now it has suffered be, uh, because of, of the pandemic. I believe that's a model of a country that is that is aiming towards sustainability, towards social inclusion, towards uh, democratic principles. Uh, I believe that Chile uh, will give us reason to be more optimistic. Uh, and I believe that uh, some corrections are coming in the region. I believe that Brazil will correct its, its path uh, uh, after next year's elections. I believe that Mexico eventually will find a way. And I believe that Colombia will, will prove to be the resilient country we know. And, and in that sense, it will be able to leave these troubled times behind. I believe that Latin America will be there. We, we're not closing this region, not yet. Ricardo, with that optimistic note, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. 
Peter, the takeaways from from this interview are a mixed bag. I think that, I mean, in a nutshell, China's doing things right and is looking forward. The U.S. is not doing enough. Um, Chile is probably going to be the front runner of the region and it shouldn't be discounted. I believe that we were more pessimistic than our guest, but I'd still continue to think that there are many structural problems that will take a long time to resolve. Well, Muni, we said that uh, Ricardo was a reasoned and rational voice in Latin America, and he certainly came across that way. I don't feel either reasonable or rational about the region right now. I, it's The structural problems are coming out like a volcano exploding, and I'm not sure they can be tamped down by center-left, center-right, or anything that even remotely seems business as usual. And with that, we say goodbye. Listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.